This is Pod Populi, podcast for the people. Hi, my name is Dr. Sarah Adams. I am a board-certified pediatrician, but I'm not your pediatrician. Feel free to use my podcast as helpful information, but in no way do I intend my podcast to replace the advice of your physician. Your physician knows you and is in the best position to provide medical advice. Hello, and welcome to Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. And welcome to 2023. I can't even believe that we're almost halfway through January, but it's exciting. Always a new year just brings newness to everything, new life, new ideas, new visions. And it's kind of a crazy time right now because we're dealing with what many people are calling a tridemic when it comes to the viruses and healthcare in general. And many people know that Tridemic is being COVID and RSV, and also we're dealing with um, influenza, of course. But there's another epidemic I really want to talk about today, and that epidemic is with mental health. We all have mental health. It's important. But the issue is that we are seeing more and more of our children and our adolescents, as well as our families in general, suffering and having impact from depression as well as anxiety. One of the projects that I get to work with and one of my initiatives is to really be there for others and to help. And that's why I like the, you know, participating and having this podcast. So thanks everyone for listening. But I also get to have the opportunity to work with some amazing people in the Ohio chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And today I am honored to have the chief executive officer of the Ohio chapter, Melissa Worvey Arnold. I want to tell you a little bit about her. She's amazing. She's had over 23 years of experience in association management, fiscal oversight, event planning, and in the development field. And in her current role as the CEO of the Ohio chapter of the American Academy of Pediatrics, she provides leadership to the chapter, its memberships, as well as serves the head of the Ohio AP Foundation. During her tenure with the Ohio AP, she has received numerous awards, recognition, including for our chapter, Chapter of the Year, from the AP every year since being eligible, 2006, 2010, 2014, 2018. And in addition to that, she's increased its operating revenue from $300,000 per year to over $4.8 million and has established a successful lobbying program that has secured better reimbursements for physicians, as well as being an advocate for the passage of various child health legislation. Ms. Arnold also serves as the immediate past chair for the executive director steering committee for the National AAP, which is an executive board for all executive directors. And in addition, she holds a place in numerous state government councils. 
Prior to her position, she served in development, fundraising, communication roles in various membership organizations and nonprofit organizations. And she worked in D.C. doing some press secretary work on Capitol Hill, as well as developed events and fundraising. She currently lives in Columbus, Ohio, has two children and two dogs. I just learned that about you. She serves on the Emeritus Board of two Columbus nonprofit organizations, serves as a member of the Ohio University Foundation Board of Trustees, and is an Emeritus member of the Board of Trustees for the Ohio University Alumni Association, and is a sustainer for the Junior League of Columbus. In 2019, she was named the Healthcare CEO of the Year from the Columbus CEO, as well as a member of the Columbus CEO Future 50 inaugural class. Congratulations. And in 2015, she was recognized by the Association Forum as a National 40 Under 40 honoree. And previously in 26, 2006, she was recognized as one of the 40 Under 40 honorees from Business First in Columbus from her Outstanding Professional Accomplishments Awards in her professional field and commitment to community service. Many times when I have guests, I don't always read the whole bio, but I felt empowered to let you know what an amazing woman she is. I know she's had a a large impact in my life. I know she has a huge impact in the children of the state of Ohio. And so I would like to welcome Miss Melissa Worthy Arnold. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I know you're very busy, but I also know that you're very passionate, like I am, for the kids in this in our communities as well as our state in general. And I know that there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes for the AAP right now. Would you take a moment to just kind of talk about some of the initiatives that you guys are currently working on? Sure. It's it's interesting because everyone always says to me, you know, what's the most important thing in child health right now? And I'm like, everything. Um, <laughs> it's always everything. Um, but it, it does run the gamut. So I know we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, depression and anxiety, which are a huge piece of, you know, everything that we're, we're focused on right now as an organization. But we also have so many different initiatives, whether it's um, some of our community facing things, like we have a big bike helmet program, where we make sure that kids are safe when they're out um, getting their exercise. So we have that program. Um, we have a childhood obesity program, a nutrition program that you actually uh, lead for us as our medical director, our parenting at mealtime and playtime program. Um, a great program for anyone who has kids, you know, from birth through 12, I think. Um, and I know we're even expanding that, but there's so many just everyday great resources there all in one location. Um, we have a program around lead screening and testing, a program around multiple programs around immunizations, the importance of them, um, how to make sure that our kids are getting access to them, um, programs around oral health, programs around early literacy. Um, if you can think of something in child health, we probably have some type of program. Um, or if we don't have an active program, we have a lot of resources. So I always tell people, if you're looking for things on um you know, Ohio specific around child health to look at our website, which is um, ohioaap.org. And right on that front page, uh, it says, you know, provider and, and family resources, go there and see some of these amazing programs. Um, I know, for example, like parenting at mealtime and playtime, 
There's a lot about, you know, sleep habits and the importance of them. Um, you know, how to play with your children when people are struggling about what should I feed my child or they're a picky eater, um, you know, looking there and, and trying to find some of those resources. So there's so much guidance out there as well as materials for providers themselves. So if you're a healthcare provider, there's also a plethora of information about, you know, with, um, about patient, working with patients and families, but they also have continuing medical education. So it really helps them, um, you know, be, be trained better in, in their field and have these resources for patients and families that they don't have to create themselves. So my kids are, um, 18 and almost 17. And I remember when they were little, um, I hadn't quite started here at the Academy. I've been here for 17 years and, you know, we had a lot of homegrown materials that our pediatrician gave us back then. And it's funny over the years, now I get our materials. So when I go into the doctor's office with my kids, I'm getting the materials that our staff created, which I love to see. Um, and I get excited and I get excited on behalf of my kids. And I'm always like, look, look who created this. Mom created this. And they're like, great mom. Thanks. <laughs> um, so they're not as excited as me, but you know, people used to not have that many resources or they were searching on the internet for them. And now we have so many in, in one location, which I just think is tremendous. Yes. And I'd like to say too, you also have them in, in some of the different languages as mm -hmm. well, which I think has been an initiative um, as, as a chapter to make sure that we're being inclusive. And, um, and that's very important. I will say, I have participated where I've been on the end where I've handed out these helmets, going back to the helmets and um, wow, the look on their faces and it's, it's like Christmas, you know, I, I felt like, gosh, it just has that really great warm feeling for Christmas. Well, I know personally that I've used these, this information and, and definitely what's really cool about each of the program is it. Each one is very well-rounded. So like you were talking about the parenting and mealtime program, it's not just about nutrition. It's about activity. It's about sleep. It's about how to talk to your kids even around food and 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 how to have like one of my favorite handouts and probably what I give away more often is we have one that's literally just on how to make mealtime less stressful. Because mm -hmm. there's so many, you know, somebody likes this, somebody doesn't, somebody doesn't even want to sit there. So it, it's, uh, and we have such an amazing group of advisors from all over the countries, all over the country, um, in, but mostly in Ohio. But we've, we've kind of stretched out in the district and, and as well had support from the national AAP as well. Well, as I mentioned, you know, depression and anxiety is something that we as a chapter and you as a chapter identified as something we really needed to work and help not the providers, um, anyone that works with children. And mm -hmm. this isn't something that the chapter, correct me if I'm wrong, started just since 2020. I mean, this has been an initiative for quite some time. And one of the programs that I'd love for you to explain is the store it safe and just kind of the background and and what, you know, this initiative has now come to even, you know, larger and has continued to grow. Sure. I, I think, you know, some of the evolution probably comes with um, my background as well. So like I said, when, you know, when I started, um, I had my son, I was pregnant with my daughter. And so we focused a lot as an organization on 
you know, younger kids. I mean, we just did in general, but it was sort of nice for me because as my kids were growing, you know, what we were working on had a real impact on, you know, my personal life. And it made me think always. Um, so we started actually, when you think about behavioral health, um, with the, what we called the Cadillac program, and it was a concerned about development program. And it was looking at developmental screens, um, in young kids. So what we knew from the literature was that there's all these kids out there that had some type of developmental delay. And I believe the number right now is one in eight have some type of developmental delay. And pediatricians and family physicians thought, you know, they were doing a pretty good job of capturing that data but um, and figuring it out. But what we learned was they weren't. So they were missing it almost half the time. So, you know, their evidence-based screens came forward and the chapter um, sought some money at the state house and um, secured a pretty large program to go out and spread developmental screening across the state of Ohio. And, you know, when we were working on that program, we started then thinking, you know, what's the next step in this? So we are identifying these problems, but now what? Um, and from that, um, we had a program that grew out of that called Building Mental Wellness. Again, though, still really focused on the younger kids um, in the beginning. So we talked about um, things like ADHD and autism um, and other, you know, developmental delays, too. Then we also kind of branched out and then it became, well, what about, you know, some of these older kids and some of the anxiety and depression? And, you know, that's where the building mental wellness component came in. So we started looking at that um, probably about in 2012, 2013, 2014. And, you know, there was just such a need and such still and still now a shortage of providers who actually can work with these families. But one thing that we felt as an academy was we needed to get in there and do the preventative component, which was early identification and helping families, you know, with early identification. So we were identifying it. And then we really struggled with where to refer these children and families to, because the wait times were pretty long back then. They're, they're still pretty long now. Yes. Um, but we knew that at least if we could identify early and start to, you know, the, start the process, it would be better. And then even thinking about, you know, educating our members on how to treat some of this in their in their, um, in the primary care office, whether that's medication management or just, you know, simple tips and tools that they could, and strategies families could use. So we started that program a while ago. Um, the state funding went away, which happens all the time. And we were sort of regrouping and kind of trying to figure it out. And at that time, you know, other things started developing. Um, and one of the big focuses of the academy, um, at a local level became injury prevention. So we have two passionate physicians, Dr. Sarah Denny and Dr. Mike Gittleman, who lead all of our injury prevention efforts. And they came to me one day um, after, a meet, after a big conference that we were at and said, you know, we're really concerned about firearms and what can we do in the area of firearm prevention? Firearm prevention is not an easy topic always to talk about. Um, and it's always been somewhat of a contentious topic. And, you know, they said, why is it contentious? You know, there are firearms in homes. We know this. Um, we just need to talk about, you know, what's the common ground here? Can't the common ground be store your, your firearm safely if you have one in your home? And seemed simple to me. And, you know, it was um, a great concept. We actually went out and built a relationship with the Buckeye Firearms Association, which is, um, you know, a pro-Second Amendment organization in Ohio, the largest, I believe, in Ohio. And they said, you know, we absolutely agree as firearm owners we don't want kids harmed. And we were really focused at that time on um, unintentional injuries. So really looking at these young kids and the, the 
you know, stories in the headlines constantly about, you know, a two or three year old accidentally finding a firearm and harming themselves or someone else in the household. Um, that was our focus for the first couple of years. And we started rolling the program out. And as we did that, um, this is, you know, prior to COVID. So 2018, 2019, we're really getting started, really ramping things up. Um, and people came to us and said, well, what about intentional injury with firearms? And what about teen suicide? And what about the growing number of our patients who are suffering from mental health issues? And, you know, we looked at the program, we said, you know, you're right. So the program really um, became a, a much broader program as we looked at, you know, intentional injuries. And what we always say is, you know, it's an irreversible action. You know, how do we stop the trend of irreversible actions? And that is, you know, what teen suicide is for us. So well, it started off as firearms. That's where the name is still store it safe. Um, it has really morphed into a much bigger program. Um, and we, you know, we don't just talk about firearms. We talk about all lethal means. So if you have medications, store them safely. A lot of kids nowadays are on some type of medication. Um, those can be, you know, lethal to these, these patients. So making sure that they're stored safely or parents can be on medications. So, you know, they should be locked away as well. Um, and really just talking about the basic principle of, um, again, preventative medicine around suicide, which is, you know, barrier methods, storing some things safely, um, early identification screening. So implementing things like depression screening into primary care and suicide screening into primary care. Um, so we were, you know, building this program, getting a lot of steam and momentum, COVID hit. Um, a lot of our effort then, of course, shifted to just, you know, everything that was going on during mm -hmm. that time, whether it's the debate around masks, um, debate around vaccine, um, how do we keep kids engaged? How do we, you know, keep them safe? How do we keep them out of the hospitals? You know, kids weren't in the hospitals as much as we were seeing older population, but they still were there. Um, they were definitely spreaders and carriers too. So looking at all those issues and we're really consumed by that. And at that same time, uh, many of our members, especially our board members said, you know, it's really concerning is the mental health of these kids. Mm -hmm. They're shuttered away. Um, they're not interacting with other kids. They they are a little bit on um, social media platforms, which can be good or bad. But then we were seeing more spikes in bullying and you know other harmful pieces of social media. So on one hand, it was keeping them connected, and the other hand, it was hurting them. Um, so you know we were struggling with you know how do we look at this from a resiliency standpoint and you know, when, when COVID ends, you know, how do we get back from this? And then our teen suicide rates just skyrocketed. Mm. Um, and the, the focus of the program then has been much more now on mental health in general. So how do we reach out to, um, patients and families? How do we talk to them early? And then when they are struggling, what are the resources we can provide them in a quick fashion? Um, it's been amazing to see. I mean, we are fortunate in the state of Ohio to have so many children's hospitals, they all have some type of mental health, um, you know, larger, larger mental health program. And many of them are building new facilities. Um, I know two, two of the big hospitals right now are doing that to expand access to, for patients and families, which, you know, a lot of times is, you know, people say, oh, well, good. Then the problem solved. We have these places to go, but they don't realize those are really crisis beds. Those are when a child's in crisis, but we really need to focus on, you know, how do we help this generation get back to teaching the basic skills of being resilient through this, mm -hmm. knowing that they lost a big part of their childhood. 
Um, and there's no way that we're gaining that back for them. So now it's a focus on other skills and, you know, it's an all hands on deck effort, whether it's working with primary care physicians and our members, you know, to make sure that they're talking to families, but, you know, I think parents are struggling with this and, um, we've talked to kids, you know, what do we do for you as children? I mean, we've been talking to teens, we've included them and we've really made that part of our platform and it's hard. They don't have a lot of answers. Um, and we probably wouldn't expect them to, but you know, it's, it's difficult. And, um, I was just telling someone the other day, I was, I was watching this TV show. It's called working moms. I've never seen it, but it's on Netflix. I'll have to check it out. Um, and it's, it's a com- mostly a comedy. Um, I, I think a Canadian based comedy, but these women are out there and, you know, uh, this last season, the main character says, you know, we set out to change the world, you know, we graduated from college and we were going to change the world and we were going to do these amazing things. And then we had kids and then we were trying to figure out how to balance kids in our job. And then we started going through, you know, how do you make that all work? You know, and I started thinking about that. I mean, all of my friends talk about this balance, right? Yes. First of all, I think there is no real balance. I mean, it's one side wins. It or the teeters. Other side wins. It teeters, right? right? It's a teeter, it's, right. Uh, it's a teeter-totter. So sometimes one's up and sometimes the other. But 100% across everything is, you know, not usual. And I started thinking about our Store It Safe program and this TV show and kind of that whole concept. And I thought, you know, it's that whole analogy of when you're on an airplane and the oxygen mask drops, you have to put it on yourself first. And one of the areas that we haven't looked at so much yet is what about the parents of these kids? Right. And what are the resources for them? I mean, I will say as a parent myself, who's um, both of my children suffer from depression and anxiety um, and have had big struggles with that. It's hard in the mom. um, And it's hard when you're in a role like this where everyone says, well, you have access to you know, 2,900 pediatricians. And I'm like, and my members are, and my leadership are amazing and supportive and wonderful and give me resources. But, you know, when a child comes to you at, you know, 10 o'clock at night and says, I just can't get over, you know, the thought of harming myself and taking my life. And I, I just can't get past this, all of those resources and, you know, everything go out the window. And so you go into crisis mode, but I think when we're not in crisis mode, you know, what are we, what are we doing as parents and, you know, working moms and working dads to sort of think about this for ourselves? Are we doing our best job to help these kids if we're still struggling? Right. Um, You know, and I think a lot of us struggled during COVID too, with the isolation um, and every, you know, and then sort of the rebuilding and And the new normal still changed. Right. And the new normal is still different. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, we, We could say like, there's a lot of things that we have regained, but it's not the same. Right. In that. And I think, you know, we've lost some connections that we used to have too. Um, and I think about this for my kids, they had just started at a new high school when COVID hit. And then, um, well, I guess COVID was already happening. They went to the new high school, you know, and you're masked um, the entire time, which is hard to read facial expression when people are masked. I think people got better at it as <laughs> as the pandemic wore on, mm-hmm. um, was almost smiling with your eyes, but mm-hmm. it was sort of strange, you know, to, to see people and you couldn't tell what was going on behind there. Um, so they're at school two days a week in a mask and didn't really build a lot of friendships those first years. And, you know, I know that's, you know, been a struggle. My son's a senior, he'll graduate this year. And he says, you know, I don't have a lot of close friends there because he didn't have that time to build that. Um, 
you know, so again, you know, it's now we're trying to figure out as an organization, how do we take what we know and the experts who we have to provide some resources for families. But um, I keep wondering now about, you know, what about the parents and what about their mental health? And we talk a lot about physician mental health. We talked a lot about it during COVID because they really struggled um, with what they were seeing and what they were, you know, having to do or having to be in, you know, in with patients and families and hospitals and exposing themselves every day too. So I think, you know, that war on them. But I think, you know, there's a lot of families out there that even if your child is the star athlete and the National Honor Society president and doing amazing, I think parents are still struggling during this time. Um, We're struggling with watching our kids go through this. And I don't know if we've grasped that yet. No, I, I agree. And even going back to the younger ages, I mean, it, it can start for parents right in postpartum, right? Mm-hmm. And I believe that the pediatric population, whether it's, you know, and especially the academy is starting to identify, we need to consider screening parents. And We've started doing that with our new new parents, you know, when they're newborn to six months. But you're absolutely right. What about what about that older parent? Well, and or <laughs> sorry, I don't mean to be the older parent. I'm an older parent. <laughs> what about the parent of an adolescent, an older child? Is what I meant to say. Yes, I mean we do. We need. We, you're absolutely right. On the plane, we instruct people put your mask on first, and they're often as a pediatrician. When I'm seeing these kids, I, you know, I'm certainly not an adult doctor or psychiatrist, but I can tell either, and it could be, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg, but I can tell there is some stress and impact on the parents, whether they've started with that or have had this for a while, and now they're trying to manage their own emotions over what's going on with their most important, you know, um, parts of their life with their children, or is it as a result of what their kids are going through, whichever it is, we really need to find a way to reach out because it all trickles down, you know, and here's the thing. I'm a lot older than you. And in the old days, it was always like, you're okay. You know, stand up tall, you'll get through it, push through, you know, and I'm not saying that those aren't great words of encouragement, but I think it's a time now where we need to identify our feelings, feel our feelings, figure out what to do with it, and then move forward. Because if we're not being effective as a parent, it's going to be really hard. And for ourselves, it's going to be very hard to to take care of them. And I also know I hear kids tell me all the time, they don't want to say anything to their mom and dad if they are having feelings and especially really strong emotional feelings because they're they don't want them to worry and and I've heard that before because they don't want them to to get upset and it's it's that communication piece so I really appreciate you sharing that story about your son because what's really important there is that he reached out to you and you were there for him and that is such an a, a big component and there's some families, unfortunately, that don't have that relationship, or if even if they have a strong relationship, the the child is either afraid to say something, or the parent is in denial and just 
you know, not, I, I have never seen a parent who just brushed it off, but I have seen parents kind of look at me and go, I don't know how serious to make this, you know? Right. Well, and I think that's, you know, it, it's funny when my kids were little, everyone talked about, you know, the terrible twos and toddlers. I look at toddlers now and I'm like, everyone has that wrong. They're, they're easy. <laughs> the sleepless nights, not as much, but they were pretty easy. If they threw a temper tantrum, you pick them up. You don't pick up a, you know, a 15, 16, 17 year old. So maybe, we, maybe it was just, you know, my lens, you know, at that time of being a younger parent, but as you know, they've gotten older, these teen years have just, you know, really they're trying. And I, you know, and when I talk to other parents, they say, oh my gosh, absolutely. And I had one person tell me, you know, if kids were as cute as they were as babies, when they were in high school, we would never ship them off to college. I think that's what the teen years are about. Yeah. We'd never let them go. That's for sure. They had to be difficult so that you, you know, you go away. And it's, you know, it's interesting if you talk to parents of any age, you know, after they've gone through it, they're like, oh yeah, teen years. Oh, I'm like, where was that, you know, big conversation when they were little? It's just sort of survival of the fittest, I think, as as they grow, right? So in that moment, that's the hardest thing. But we have done so much as a chapter around teens in general over the past few years. Um, Like I said, we've done it with teens too. So we've always made sure they were a part of it. We talk about vaping, we talk about drug use, we talk about sex and contraception, and we've made sure kids are a part of all of that, um, or adolescents and teens. And I think people have always said, this is a difficult age group. I just think it's, you know, COVID has really exacerbated it more than anything, if not, you know, COVID, but before that social media, and we've seen the pros and cons of social media. And I know my daughter who, like I said, she's 16, she turned 17 in a couple months, just did a, um, they had to do an English project on the movie, The Social Dilemma. And I, it was eye-opening to me. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. They talk about, you know, algorithms and they talk about the like button on Facebook and how that was actually really damaging um, because kids then would be upset if they didn't get a like. Um, same with, you know, or now it's Instagram with hearts and things. You know, it's that whole concept yes. of I'm looking for approval. I'm sending something out there and I want approval. And if I don't get it, it's very depressing for me. Um and I was saying that, but then, you know, she's sitting next to me on the couch watching it and she said, oh, I don't think so much this is true. And I said, really, when do you ever put that phone down? Because they talk about, you know, your addiction to your phone. Right. I'm not putting my phone down. And she won't put her phone down. I mean, she that thing is with her everywhere. Um, and it's funny, so they don't even see maybe some of the harmful effects that were clearly outlined for her, you know, to kind of think about. Maybe some pieces she thought about in the end. But, you know, it's it's kind of like all of these things are coming together. So we talk about the trifecta around RSV and COVID and flu um, from an infectious disease standpoint, but sort of mental health, it's, you know, COVID, it's social media. um, And it's just, I think, coming kind of coming back from, from all of that. And, you know, and also a lack of a mental health provider workforce, right? We just don't have the workforce for this. Um, And maybe we need to be doing much more mental health you know, from a preventative standpoint. So I know, you know, we've talked a little about my son. Um, he struggled for years with, you know, severe depression, um, was at Nationwide Children's for a week for crisis stabilization, and then actually made the decision on his own, he's 18, um, to go to a, a bigger treatment facility for a month and just sort of take a, a break from everything and think about things and try to heal himself. Um, and he came out 
you know, really thoughtful about things. And it's harder when he's back. When you're there, it's very isolating and or was very isolating. Um, you know, there's no social media. There's no phones. There is a five minute call with mom and dad uh, once a week. And it's all done intentionally. There's letters. It's interesting. You know, I haven't read letters. You have to write letters. Yeah. We wrote letters um, every day. It was kind of like when he's at camp in the summer, you know, he's a little kid. Write him letters. So, you know, there's lots of letters and things like that. But, and, you know, they're trying to process things. And so he came out and he had to do, speaking of English papers, he had to do an English paper. And he chose teen suicide because it was supposed to be something that was personal to you to do research on. And you make recommendations. And he said, why isn't there more done earlier? Oh. So when if there aren't enough mental health providers for a child to see a one-on-one professional, why isn't there that in school, in elementary school? He said, you know, we would have some small groups. And he suffered some trauma early on in um, a preschool environment, which caused some of his issues um, and long-term you know, depression issues. But And so not every child goes through that. And he recognizes that and says, maybe everyone doesn't need the level of intense treatment I've always needed, but many people just need something. And, you know, couldn't that be a class? He said, you know, I have to take a foreign language and I have to take government and I have to take economics and I have to take, you know, so many English and science, you know, why isn't that a class more than just a little session they do, you know, in the third or fourth grade for, you know, health class maybe did it probably for a month. Why isn't that an integrated part of their curriculum? Um, to kind of focus on that. And he said, you know, one of the most valuable things for him being at a more intensive treatment facility was the group therapy. So sitting around with people who were going through similar things. And he said, on so many levels, we were so different um, because they were from all over the country too. And he said, but then on some levels, like you get down to the core of it, it was the same. It was, they all struggled with feelings of isolation and social isolation, they all struggled with feelings of inadequacy, um, wanting to do better, wanting to do more. I mean, I definitely think you talk about kids who don't share with their parents. I think so many of them don't share with their parents because um, they don't want to be less than. They always want to be the best. That's what we push. You know, and some I, I know some people will say, you know, everyone gets a trophy for everything. I think there's some of that. But I think a lot of people who are overachieving, you know, Overachievers ourselves, we push our kids that we too, and they see that and they don't want to fail. And fear okay. of failure drives that anxiety. And then that anxiety drives that depression when you, you know, can't overcome it. So um, I thought that was interesting. I thought that was an interesting solution to, you know, what can go on in schools where, why, you know, do they sit through homeroom and have to listen to a 10 minute, I guess I mean, this is. I shouldn't say it this way because it's important too, but they listen to you like a 10 minute news reel, right? About what's going on in the world, which I think is good for them to do. But, you know. It's also anxiety provoking. I don't know about you, but uh, <laughs> sometimes I can't watch the news for that reason. Right, but, like, sorry, I didn't mean to divert. No, that's, that, true, but that's true. It's true. War over in Russia and right. Yeah. Um, but he said, you know, why couldn't there be 10 minute group where you just kind of come together and help some of these kids bond together and form some of these relationships in a, you know, a natural way where they're already at, they're already together. I think if your child's in a sport program, they sort of do some of that already. Right. Um, it's like camaraderie. Then, you know, again, right. That camaraderie. And, you know, my son didn't have that, especially with COVID. He did it before COVID and then not during and after. So he lost that. He lost that group connection. And I think, you know, that's so key. I think that was, to me, that's the most damaging part of COVID. What we're coming back from is that, is that isolation. It was the 
lack of building relationships. I even say it professionally. It's, you know, I'm used to going to so many in-person meetings and building really good relationships with um, a lot of our partners. And it's hard to do it on Zoom with 20 people. So we started doing more individual Zooms and getting to know each other, you know, that way. But people are getting back out and kind of reaching out. And I think it's a really good thing. It's a good thing for my mental health. I'm sure it's good for others too, but. I would agree. What's interesting is when you think about the developing mind of an adolescent and what they need to go through during those really formative years, mm-hmm. they didn't have that. They and, and we forget, yes, it is important to learn math and science and all of those things, but that, that connection, I think you mentioned connection and that socialization, and that's part of their growth and development. And and that was a big chunk of their life that was really unfortunately taken away from them. And I love your son's idea about why aren't we doing this earlier? And I keep thinking to myself as I'm listening that I remember doing a program. So little side note, one of the ways I initially got involved with the AAP, if you remember, Melissa, is that I got a call from um, one of the staff members in the office and said, hey, we'd really like for you to come and speak to our providers at a meeting about bullying, cyberbullying and bullying. And I was very passionate about it. And that was right about the time. So my sons were young enough that that was right about the time that Facebook was really taking off, Snap, all those kind of different things. And I really, in our community, wanted to empower parents, educate them, like how to make their own profile, how to follow, how to do um, the privacy. And we have a lot more information now, but back then we really didn't. And Mm -hmm. so that was very important to me. One of the projects that we also did was that we had, we went through this um, program where we taught the senior or not seniors, but the um, high school students. And this was part of like a service learning project that they did through school. And then they went to fourth and fifth graders and they kind of did like a nice little workshop about bullying. And it was so well received by these kids because it wasn't just another older adult person talking to them about it. It was interactive. It was fun. These were, you know, teenagers and these kids were like, but what the roadblock that I ran into with that program, because you would think like everybody, yeah, have them come in. I I want them in my, my classroom is there. There's so much that these educators now have to do in regards to curriculum that that's that here and is the problem. But It's, you know, I think finding some strategies about filling that in, even if kids get to stretch for 10 minutes or do yoga or um, whatever it is to find strategies, not only to, you know, for resiliency, but also coping mechanisms and really teaching these kids and parents. I think sometimes, too, I struggle with, you know, that sensitive boundary between, you know, explaining to them that you're their first counselor, you're their teacher, you're so much of everything. And when I tell you that I feel like I would really like for you to do these parenting classes or this sort of resource or education, in no way, shape or form am I saying that you're not doing a great job. You're doing a wonderful job. 
but they're going to spend this much time with a counselor or a therapist or psychiatrist, and they're going to spend a lot more time with you, you know, and that's right. where teaching the parents and helping them know what can I say? And I found my, I find myself doing that all the time. I, just recently, my son called and he was upset about something and I felt bad, you know, I'm, I felt really bad for him. And he, he, I totally legitimized the fact that he, you know, needed to, um, you know, get this off his chest and talk about it. And I was listening, but my response to him, and I, and I remember thinking back, I'm like, Sarah, you know, better was you're going to be okay. I wish mm-hmm. every time someone told me you're going to be okay, if I was like, okay, all right, good, I'm going to be okay. <laughs> like That would be great. But I realized, okay, yes, it's true. He'll probably be just fine, you know, in the long run. But, and everything will work out. But it wasn't helpful. And so we need to figure out strategies that are helpful and the right language, the right, you know, teaching tone. And even with our pediatricians, even with our healthcare and our government, you know, we talk about that too. So getting back to Stuart Safe real quick, and I know, Melissa, you and I could talk all day long because we're both very passionate about this and, and we've had, you know, our own personal stories around it. But also, um, did you find roadblocks at all in regards to Stuart Safe? You mentioned in the in a community level, you had some support, but... Mm-hmm. Um, did, did you find people were, you know, feeling like you were taking sides, so to speak, in regards to the Stuart Safe program? We did. So initially when we came out of the gate and said we were going who we were partnering with, um, there was some backlash from some of our own members, um, and some leadership and, you know, the American National Association, so the American Academy of Pediatrics is a different or we're a linked organization, but we're we're separate too. So they can have their own policies, then we can have our own. Their policy has always been the safest home is a home without a firearm. Um, and we recognize that. And it's not that, you know, we want to compete or conflict with their policy, but that's not reality in the state of Ohio. We know it's 50 to 60 <clears> percent, <throat> excuse me, of Ohio homeowners um have guns. So to turn to blind eye and just say, well, that's what it should be. Right. It, it reminded me of, you know, when my kids were little and th- I, I think the rule is still the same, but it was, you know, no screen time until age of two. And I was like, come on, like, I'm- <laughs> <laughs> I need a little help here. And baby Einstein and the wiggles were really helpful for me during right. those years. So, you know, you know, the guidance and okay, that might be best practice, or maybe that's the safest, but that's not reality. So, um, you know, I think it was innovative for us to then actually partner with them and say, what's our common ground? Because the other thing is, when you're having a conversation um, like that, and I'll link this for the firearms to mental health, but when you're having a conversation with a family that has a firearm, if you are judgmental in the discussion and lead it with your home should not have a gun, it's done. The conversation's over. The yeah. advice is done. They're not listening. They're done. If instead it's, you know, you treat firearms or medications, any lethal means, just the same you would treat um Seatbelts, for example, you know, another injury prevention topic that is discussed. It's just a, a, a natural question. Do you have a fire? You know, if you have a fire in the firearm in the home, you need to store it safely. Oh, okay. Also, by the way, that program comes with storage boxes that you can safely store a firearm. Um, or if you don't have a firearm, you can store medications in it. Would you like one of those boxes today? And that's part of what the program provides as well. Um, 
And so, you know, we did get a little pushback in the beginning on that. People were not so happy with how we were going about it. But I think now have come to recognize why we did it and appreciate it. Um, and again, we started it with young kids. So once we moved to older kids, there seemed to be less focus on that. People were more, um, more accepting that we were talking about lethal means in general. But that's always a touchy and political subject. So sometimes when we're in conversations, we say lethal means and we talk a lot about more about medications and firearms because firearms can be a trigger when you talk about them. Um, you know, people automatically make the assumption we're saying they're bad. We're not saying they're bad. We're just saying they need to be stored safely like medications. I, you know, my children are on depression medications. I think they're life-saving for them. They could also cost them their life if they took too many of them. So mm -hmm. they're locked up. Um, so, you know, I think that has helped us a little. I think there was some concern when we started about the topic of suicide, just isn't a comfortable topic for a lot of people. Right. Um, and, you know, I think the media struggles with things like that. Parents in school struggle with it when it happens in a community. Um, do you talk about it? And are there copycats? And, you know, does it encourage um, other kids to kind of think about it? Right. And that's always been, you know, a struggle. So they try not to um, – glamorize it or glorify, you know, that that happened, you know, the movie or the TV show, uh, 13 reasons why. That I watched that. Yeah. yeah. And I watched it and I know a lot of, you know, advocates said, Oh my gosh, this is making kids think if people pick on them, that that's something they could do. And this would be like their ultimate revenge. I'm not sure if that ever came to fruition. I knew there was warnings about it. And I think they did a pretty good job of then talking about suicide. I think it was eye opening for families. Um, and so, I, you know, it's just a difficult topic, but people, I think, are putting their head in the sand if they think kids aren't hearing about this. So maybe 20, 15 to 20 years ago, if you kept it out of the papers and the school kind of kept it quiet, you didn't think about teen suicide. It is now all over social media. When it happens, friends share and classmates share and families share. And I think the, the good part of that sharing is you see that this isn't suicide isn't isolated and mental health disorders aren't isolated to one type of the population. And if it crosses over every socioeconomic class, it crosses over overachiever and underachievers. It's, you know, kids who are athletes, kids who are not athletes, kids who are involved with things, kids who are not. And, you know, one of the things that I remember um, all the time when we talk about it is the impulsivity of teenagers and why this program is so different from adult suicide because teenagers, you know, that impulsivity can lead to so many bad decisions so quickly where adults think things through a little bit more and teens just, their brains aren't there yet. No. You know, they just haven't developed there. But if we don't talk about it with families and we don't make sure parents know the risks, I think we're just putting our head in the sand because these kids know, these kids know about it. Um, they're more versed in it. And if, you know, if we act like it's not happening or fail to recognize that it's happening, we're just not, you know, we're not going back to the core principles of pediatrics, which is, you know, prevention. So to prevent this, we do need to start thinking about it early. Um, I, rem I remember. You know, I'm grateful in my life that my my son did come forward and say, this yes. is how I'm feeling. I'm so grateful he felt that he could do that as opposed to do something um, that would be irreversible. Would you be open to explaining not just what you did as an action step, but in your mind at that moment when, you know, because I remember when my kids were teenagers, 
I would like sometimes the things that they would say, and I was grateful that they would communicate with me, but I, I'd kind of like, I'd have to take a deep breath because a lot of times it's that reaction that Mm -hmm. makes them pause before they talk to us. Right. Because they're not sure what's going to happen. And so I would always say to them, you know, you could share with me whatever you need. I'm, but I'm going to tell you, I'm probably going to just take a deep breath and, you know, give me a moment so that I know the right things instead of reacting. So if you're open to just sharing kind of like what went through your mind at that time. So I think both times, um, were sort of similar. So the first time it was more of a surprise. Um, the depression we knew was there. We knew he was struggling. He had recently broken up with, um, a girl he had been dating for a few months. Um, so I knew he was, you know, not in the best place, but to hear him say, you know, I want to kill myself. Um, and we said, you know, kind of what you just said, you know, is take a breath and think, okay, do I go all in or is this normal teen angst of, you know, I want to kill myself more of a phrase than, you know, what he was actually going through Um, and talked it through. And he just said, I, that's the only thought I have in my mind. That's the only thing I can think about for, you know, for weeks now, it is what I wake up thinking about. It is what I go through all day long. Um, I can't function. I, you know, I can't study. I can't sleep. Um, I just, I can't pull out of this. I don't know what to do. And I, and I, you know, we said, you know, do you think you'll harm yourself? Is there a plan? And he told us his plan. And that was the, that's the stop point for us. That's where this isn't, um, normal teen behavior. This is something bigger. And so that's when, uh, the first time he went down and we talked to his, his therapist and he agreed. And so he went down to, um, for a week for in crisis stabilization. And I think, you know, it helped, um, it certainly deescalated the crisis component and the therapeutic interventions were helpful, but the challenge is when they come home, it doesn't mean that everything's fine. It doesn't just go back to normal. So he went through a lot more intensive therapy, he went through, um, dialectical behavioral therapy. So 16 week group of that, um, that unfortunately it was done virtually, which I think had some limitations to it, but we went through that and we went through that as parents with him. Okay. So we both, you know, um, we're on every session with our son and, and thought that was, you know, really great and helpful for us too to learn some of those same skills that he was learning. Um, and had, you know, other therapy and had, um, a therapist who came to our house and, and did different things. But as he sort of slipped again, um, you could, we could see some of the warning signs, you know, you could see that his intention, his attention to his academics wasn't as strong. Um, his motivation wasn't as strong, even simple things like he wasn't really picking up after himself. I mean, he's a teenager. I could go on forever about what a teen, a house looks like with teenagers, but right. simple things, you know, it was just, you could notice he just wasn't at, didn't care as much. Um, so we were getting a little concerned and there was some mention of it and it would kind of come and go. Um, and then on his 18th birthday, he said something that he was, you know, starting to feel all this angst. We also thought, you know, that's probably something a lot of kids go through at 18. That's sort of a turning point. You know, he was going out to college next year. What happens when all that happened? You know, it's a lot of change. Um, I remember looking forward to that, but he has a lot of anxieties. Maybe this is more anxious, you know, driven than excitement driven. So there were some warning signs that we were sort of watching. And then, um, he started missing a lot of school because, um, you know, of his mental health. So just really 
decompensating in school. Just, I can't be here. I, you know, I'm just overwhelmed. I'm struggling. His teachers and administrators were amazing um, in trying to work with us. And then um, I was actually out of town the day we made the decision this last time. And um, I got a call from my ex-husband that said, you know, I'm with Connor in the car and we're going to go down a nationwide. And I think he needs to go back into crisis stabilization. He is at that point. Um, and then when he got there, he said, I don't want to go there again. Cause when you're in a situation like that, you're in a room pretty much by yourself for a week and you're only seeing therapists, so only adults. And he didn't want that. He wanted something different to help him. So like I said, he went to a more intensive place that does do things like, um, yoga and, um, group. horse yeah. therapy and group and oh, a little bit different. You know, the challenge with that is there's lots of structure and lots of discipline in those settings too. So that was tough at first. Um, but you know, he said, you know, some of those things, some of those routines were actually helpful and I've watched as he's been back home again, you know, kind of slipping in some of those. So kind of reminding him like some of those routines were really important, you know, physical activity every few, like every day or two is really helpful for your mental health. It's helpful for mom's mental health. I know it's helpful for yours. Um, you know, and it kind of ties back to, you know, we talked about parenting, meal time and playtime, yeah. there's sleep routines sleep. and Right. So those routines are so helpful. I mean, they're helpful as adults, you know, during COVID. I, I mean, most of my routines are out the window about bedtimes and my own bedtimes, not my kids, but, um, you know, just how we did things. And so kind of remembering the importance of that and, you know, it's kind of helped us keep back on track. But I think, you know, both times it was just, it's this gut feeling that, you know, um, so I think you, you know, you can't ignore it. If they say it's there, you can't ignore it and say, oh, this is just teen behavior. Oh, it's just teen angst. Ask questions. And I always, you know, try to ask my kids a lot of questions and not just, you know, leave it at the surface. Um, you know, I try not to say, you know, how was your day? I try to say things like, tell me one good thing about your day. Right. And if there's no good things about their day over and over again, I know there's a problem. So then I'll start to say, tell me something that bothered you today you know, and then you might start hearing more, but I find, you know, most kids will be pretty upfront with what they're going through. It's just, um, I guess my own personal experiences, it was, it's trying to make sure that when it's really bad, I mean, there's been two times when he got really bad and no one was there. Um, and one time, um, he tried to use a belt to harm himself. Um, and whatever, and when he put it on, like it wouldn't hold or something. So once he told us that, I think that was the first time we knew that he had done that, but he had done that months before and hadn't said anything, but knowing that, knowing that there was enough thought and intent, um, I feel like we were lucky that, you know, in those moments he wasn't able to find something that he could have impulsively done it. So it's sort of like, if you can get past the impulse and then have a conversation, there's a willingness to want help and get help. Um, but with that impulsivity and both my kids have ADHDs. So I know that also comes with the territory of ADHD, but, um, you know, really being mindful. That's why I think store it safe is so important when people, you know, I don't have firearms in my home, but I have lots of friends who do and they, you know, talk about it and they actually store them safely too. But I've said, you know, I have medications. I'm very careful about that. Um, but sometimes it's, you know, you can't be careful enough and there's lots of ways that someone can harm themselves. It's just, you know, are we listening? Are we being open? And then really pushing when they say something. I think that's both times we really had to push and push and push and make sure we were really in a different position. It wasn't just um, like I had a bad day and I have to, you know, 
eat it like for me, it'd be, you know, eat some pizza and some ice cream and go to bed early and watch some terrible shows and hide Take under the cover. <laughs> yeah. And just calm down and, you know, feel terrible and then move on the next day. It's, it's, you know, it's a little different. And like I said, with teens though, I think it is different. It's not, it's not weeks long, you know, like you'd see an adult, but you can see the highs and lows. And when you see those lows, just being mindful of them and asking questions and, I think the best thing to do is to keep an open conversation with kids about it and not hide it. Like it's not a taboo. It does happen. Um, Depression does happen. You know, impulsivity happens and suicide happens. And, you know, um, you know, how do we have an open dialogue? So when it does happen, you don't harm yourself without, you know, thinking or talking or reaching out to someone, whether it's a friend or a family member or a parent, whoever it is. I remember Dr. Gittleman had said, you mentioned the impulsivity. I'm pretty sure the statistic is once they have the thought, and especially if they have the plan, it usually, it's like a 20 minute window. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, being aware of that, I think is important. And I want to reiterate what you have said about this. And that is you are asking him open-ended questions. You ask your kids open-ended questions because if you ask yes or no, you're going to get yes or no answers. And so it's so important when, or you want to fix it right away, you know, and sometimes you just need to listen. And so I want to encourage parents when you hear your child saying something that, and it's uncomfortable when, when they do, it's uncomfortable for them. It's uncomfortable for us take a deep breath. And like uh, Melissa said, ask more questions. And a, a simple question can be, tell me more about that. Or tell mm-hmm. me all about that. And then resist the urge to interrupt. And, you know, and just listen, because they they need you to do that at that time. And I think same, you know, not only listen, but I think, I mean, especially especially all generations, I think, besides this one, it's that whole pick yourself up with your bootstraps and you'll be fine. We all have the natural instinct to go, oh, you'll be fine. You don't even know, you know, oh, you broke up with, a, you know, a girlfriend or a boyfriend. Oh, there'll be 20 of those, you know, before you find the right one. It's a natural thing for us to do. And it's how we all grew up. Um, And it's not these kids are wired a little differently. And I, I think, you know, some of it's a pandemic. I don't know if it's the pandemic and social media combination of both, but they don't have the same thought on that. Um, and so it's really, you know, you, you really can't just say everything will be fine. And, you know, a lot of times I'll say, what can I do? What are some things we can do to help? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether it's a, a therapist or a physician or a friend, um, sometimes my son, I'll say, let's go for a drive. We'll go, drive somewhere and go somewhere different. We'll take the dogs for a walk. You know, what can we do to get out of whatever mindset we're in, but, you know, listening and then and being careful not to sort of be dismissive. Right. Right. That's probably one of the most important things because then they're not going to come back because right. we talked about that teeter totter. This is, this is something that is, it's a journey. It's not a one and done type of, of um, concern, and it there's there what we're we're blessed, like you said, in Ohio to have the resources that we do, 
but we need to right in our own homes know how to you know prevent how to access those resources and i really love his idea of why aren't we starting early to really work on things to help prevent not just waiting till they're teenagers it's it's getting to that those younger ages and coming up with programs and even if it just takes a short amount of time well like i said we could talk for so long and this is such an important topic and i really appreciate your insight and also sharing your story and i think the what we're, the common theme here is awareness I think it's prevention. It's, you know, not like you said, turning a blind eye and thinking this will never happen to my family. And, um, and just also, I, I love that you said, we're not just folk, we're in injury prevention versus just focusing on firearms. Because if you talk about all the other things, it brings up the thoughts about any family. What do I have at home? How can I keep my kids safe? And um, and empowering parents to really um, work with oops, <laughs> work with their kids. I, I use my hand, so I'm hitting the microphone. But but not be afraid to talk about it. Like you said, it's very important that you talk about it. And um, I just want to thank you so much. And I want to reiterate to everyone too that the it's the OhioAAP.org.org. And there really is so much information about not only just storing it safe and injury prevention, but like Melissa said, about other, even like sports medicine, about, um, um, the, of course, my the program that I'm more pa- I'm most passionate about, and that's, you know, nutrition and, um, and activity. But I just can't thank you enough for taking the time. I know you're busy. And, and discussing this really important topic. And um, if I want to give you the last word here, because sometimes I know when I finish the podcast, I'm always like, I wish I would have said this. Is there anything else or any um, other comments you'd like to make before we say goodbye? The only thing I would say is if someone's listening and has some personal stories, whether it's around mental health or any of the program areas that we do, we love to have that personal connection to families. Um, our leadership is great about sharing their own you know, stories. Our staff is great about sharing their stories and we incorporate a lot of that. But if people are out there who have things that they think, you know, people need to know this, it would really help um, to explain things. That's helpful to us. So, you know, my information is all over our website. If they want to reach out to me directly or they want to you know, reach out through a general general inquiry on our website. We love it. So if there are people out there passionate about things, we want to hear from them too. Yeah, and they have ideas on uh, what we can do, mm-hmm. or not just early, but all the way through their childhood um, to help prevent this and to provide education. I think we would love to hear it. And also on my website, growing up with drsarah.com, there is an area where you can um, – leave, you know, ask questions. So I'm, I'm also uh, a way that I can connect you through the chapter as well. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that your family, your son, your daughter, they're, they're putting in the work, they're doing better. And what an amazing advocate you are for not just, I mean, most importantly, yourself and your children, but also for the children and the providers 
in the state of Ohio. Thank you so much, Melissa, for joining me. Thank you. And I just want to encourage everybody to follow me and, um, you know, on wherever you listen to your shows. And it's so important that you know that we're growing up together. <laughs>